Good morning. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 13. When the day of the Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And the divided tongues as as fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing their speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Madai, and Almites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Capetokeda, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya, belonging to Corina, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and Prasitites, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. The word of the Lord. We are uh, finishing today a series on the Holy Spirit. Um, and some of you may have noticed throughout this series, like, hey, um, are we going to have a sermon on the gifts of the Holy Spirit? When are we going to talk about spiritual gifts? It's a fair question because there are several places in the Bible that talk about this, and they tend to get a lot of attention, um, especially what we often call charismatic gifts, things like prophecy or healing or the one we see in this passage, speaking in tongues. People are fascinated by these gifts um, because they are really, they're spectacular and attention-grabbing gifts, which means, in fact, that oftentimes people will pray for these gifts. You know, has every, anybody here ever prayed for the gift of service or the gift of administration? Maybe, but um, if we were to ask for a show of hands, I'll bet that probably a lot more people have prayed for the gift of tongues than the gift of generosity. Why? I want to suggest that sometimes, not always, but sometimes our desire for the more spectacular attention-grabbing gifts is really more about ourselves than, than it is about God. And, um, and that makes sense because, you know, there's a real tension here in our lives. In other words, we want to shine. We want to make a name for ourselves in the world. There's, there's a real tension here because on the one hand, we all want to know that we have meaning and purpose, that our lives in this world, our, our presence matters. But on the other hand, our world conditions us to believe that that's only possible if we're doing great things, if we're doing spectacular, attention-grabbing things. 
So this is a real challenge. In fact, as I was um, preparing this series, I thought, you know, we've had sermons here before on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, For instance, back in August of 2018, if you want to go listen on our podcast. But today is Pentecost Sunday. That means that today is the anniversary of what we just read in this passage. God pours out His Holy Spirit on the disciples, and they all start speaking in all these different languages. It's this amazing event, and a lot of times that's that's what gets all of the attention. But this passage is also a really good place to look more deeply at the overall purpose of spiritual gifts, and that's what I'd like to do this morning. In fact, I want to invite us to be like the crowd in this passage when the disciples start speaking in all these different languages. A crowd gathers, and they're amazed by what they hear and see, and they say, what does this mean? Let's be like the crowd, okay, and ask the question, what does this mean? I want to look at this passage and learn three things about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see the focus of the gifts the purpose of the gifts, and lastly, how to receive the gifts, okay? The focus, the purpose, and how to receive the gifts. First, let's look at the focus of the gifts, and in order to do that, let's begin with just a little backstory. Fifty days before this happened, Jesus was crucified. He rose physically from the dead and spent the next several weeks preparing his disciples to carry the gospel to the whole world before he ascended to heaven. Now, here it is, 50 days later, there's, the disciples are in a house, there's about 120 of them, and, um, and, and all of a sudden, the whole house is filled with the sound of a rushing wind, and then flames of fire appear on top of each one of their heads. In the Bible, wind and fire are signs of the presence of God. God pours out His Holy Spirit on the disciples, empowering them to speak in many different languages. Now, um, a lot of times, that's what gets all the attention in this passage. It's this spectacular supernatural event, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But first, here's what I want us to notice. Um, When the disciples start speaking in tongues, what are they actually saying? There's a multi-ethnic, multicultural crowd that gathers around them, and the crowd actually tells us what they're saying. The crowd says, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, that phrase, the mighty works of God, in the Bible, that is not just talking about, like, random miracles. The phrase is used to refer to the supernatural intervention of God in history, in the world, to rescue people from evil and deliver them from oppression. One of the most famous examples would be Exodus. That's when God rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt and parted the waters of the Red Sea and brought them through on dry land. The mighty works of God. But here, um, it's talking about the ultimate example of the mighty works of God, the life, death, and physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The mighty works of God is a way of talking about the gospel. Gospel literally means good news. It's like headline news, like extra, extra, read all about it. The mighty works of God is all about something that's actually happening in history. Now, here's what this means for us. Getting filled with the Holy Spirit means getting filled with a captivating obsession for the gospel. It means that that your whole heart is filled with the gospel. It captures your attention. It becomes everything to you. 
And here's why this is so important for us. Remember what we were just talking about in the introduction. In in this world, we all want to know that our lives have meaning and purpose, that our presence in this world matters. But this world conditions us to believe that that's only possible if we're doing great things in this world, spectacular attention-grabbing things. We want to shine. And that makes sense. But here's the thing. Our captivating obsession, when that's the case, really, you know, that becomes the thing that fills our heart and captures our imagination. We want to shine, which means that it's really not about the mighty works of God. It's about the mighty works of me. And we can do this with all kinds of things in our life. We might do this with our work or our school or with parenting or a social cause or political activity. We even do this with spirituality. You know, in our culture, spirituality is is very popular, but oftentimes it's framed in terms of me and my personal journey. Especially in our social media age, faith and spirituality, it really becomes more about, you know, your personal brand and identity. It's a lifestyle choice, and it's totally optional. So, for instance, recently I started noticing ads for something called a monk journal, and I didn't really pay any attention to it. I thought, whatever, it's just a brand name. I didn't pay any attention to it. But then I started noticing articles about monastic spirituality, but they were in business journals. So I got curious, and I started doing some research, and I realized that there's this whole thing now called monk mode. Has anybody heard of that? Monk mode is where you adopt certain aspects of a monk's lifestyle into your life, things like solitude, silence, discipline, um, attention, focus, things like that. But the reason you do it is not to get closer to God, but as a way of optimizing your life and boosting productivity. That's the way spirituality works in our culture. In our culture, spirituality, more often than not, it's really um, it's a lifestyle choice or a consumer option that you pick and choose as part of your um, customized personal identity. It's more like choosing a gym or changing your hairstyle. So for us to say something like, well, you know, Christianity isn't really my thing, is really pretty much the same thing as saying, you know what, CrossFit isn't really my thing. I'm more of a yoga person. Or, you know what, deodorant isn't really my thing. I'm more of an au naturel type of person. That we reduce the gospel to a consumer option and a personal choice. It's, it's, it's totally optional, and it's a consumer option in our life. In our culture, spirituality becomes a private consumer option that we pick and choose as part of our personal brand and identity. You know what that is when we reduce the gospel to a consumer choice? That's what's called a category mistake. In other words, either Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead or he didn't. But if he did, then you know what that means? To say Christianity isn't really my thing is really closer to saying, you know what, gravity isn't really my thing. It's a category mistake. In our culture, spirituality becomes all about me and my personal journey. It's a a consumer option. But if we make Christianity, if we make spirituality... um, a consumer option, a private choice, something that's totally optional, then what we're doing is it's really more, it's not about the mighty works of God. It's about the mighty works of me. And when we do that, the tragic irony is that when we focus on ourselves like that, when we focus on um, what people think about us, on how well we're performing in this world, on how much stuff we have, when we do that, the more anxious we become, the more self-absorbed we become, and the more exhausted we become. 
But when the captivating obsession of your life becomes the mighty works of God through Jesus, that does two things for you. First, it lifts you up out of yourself so that the focus is no longer on yourself, but on God. Second, and amazingly, it actually fulfills the deepest desires of your heart to shine. Because when the more you look at Jesus and what he's done for you, the more you begin to realize that you really are already shining in the eyes of the only one in the universe whose opinion really matters, God. Friends, the main work of the Holy Spirit is to make that more real to you. That's the focus of the gospel. In fact, I want to go back to to the main thing we learned the very first week of this series on the Holy Spirit and just remind us all again of that. Here's what we learned. The main thing the Holy Spirit does is dwell inside of you to make the glory of Jesus more real to you. The glory of Jesus, it's the focus of the gospel. And that leads to our second point. We've just looked at at the focus of of the gifts, but secondly, we need to take a look at the purpose of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now we can talk about speaking in tongues, okay? One of the things that always gets our attention in this passage is the supernatural aspect of what's going on here. But really, focusing on that is to miss the bigger purpose of spiritual gifts. The the real purpose of spiritual gifts is way bigger than just a supernatural display of power for the sake of displaying supernatural power. And here's why. Did you notice in the middle of this passage there was this long list of all these different nations and ethnicities? There's all this ethnic diversity in the middle of this passage. The other major place in the Bible that has a a long list of nations like this is all the way back in Genesis chapter 10. There's a list of nations. It's called the Table of Nations. There's all this ethnic diversity and it's there because it's, it's there to point to God's vision. Back in Genesis chapter 1, he calls humanity to fill the earth and multiply. God's vision is that humanity would spread throughout the world, spread diversity through the world. That's his vision. But then, right after Genesis 10 and Genesis chapter 11, you remember the story of Babel? That's what happens. So what happens is uh, all the people come together, they have one language, and this is what they say. Come, let us build a city and a tower, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They they don't want to spread out through the world. They don't want to spread out and diversify. They want to come together and have one language, one city, one tower, one center of power. This is what we could call the imperial impulse. What does that mean, the imperial impulse? You know what empires do? empires um, take all the different cultures and, and ethnic groups around them, and they say, you will either assimilate to us, or we will annihilate you. Take your pick. In fact, there's a Croatian theologian named Miroslav Volf. He makes a really brilliant observation about this passage. He says, you know, basically, the, um, the, the people in Babel here are resisting God's call to ethnic diversity. They're, they're opting instead for the imperial impulse. In fact, Miroslav Volf has firsthand knowledge of what this is all about because he's from Croatia, which was one time a part of communist Yugoslavia that was an authoritarian, totalitarian regime that said to all the nations around them, you become like us. You adjust to us. One language, one culture, one center of power. It's the imperial impulse. 
So in Genesis chapter 11, God comes down on the city of Babel, and, um, and basically he confuses their language so that nobody can understand one another, and then he disperses them throughout the, the whole earth. And Miroslav Volf looks at this and he says, God is basically forcing diversity on them. Now, fast forward to Acts chapter 2. Are you beginning to see what's happening here? It's the reversal of Babel. In Babel, everybody had one language, but nobody could understand one another. But here in Acts chapter 2, there's one universal message of salvation, the mighty works of God through Jesus. But that message, God makes it understandable in all the different languages of the world. It's, it's the reversal of the imperial impulse. In fact, this is one of the most important things for us to understand about Christianity you know, there's one universal message of salvation, the mighty works of God through Jesus, but that one universal message is carried in multiple cultural forms. One universal message carried in multiple cultural forms. That's very important. Because there's one universal message, that means that the gospel lifts you up out of your culture a little bit and unites you to other cultures and other ethnicities. But because that gospel message is, is carried in multiple cultural forms, it, will, it displaces your cultural identity, but it never erases your cultural identity. In other words, you're a Christian, but you're still Chinese. You're a Christian, but, but you're still Puerto Rican. You're a Christian, but you're still African American or Polish or whatever your cultural background is. In fact, if you look at the history of Christianity throughout the world, you'll notice it begins in Jerusalem with brown and olive-skinned people, Next, it goes to Rome. Next, it goes to Africa, if you look at the history, and only then does it continue on to Europe and North America. In fact, most Christians today are not here in America. They're in places like Asia or Latin America or Africa. In fact, the quintessential representative face of Christianity today is not a white man. <laughs> it's a teenage African girl. Or we could say it like this. You know um, what code switching is? Code switching is when you um, are part of one culture, but then you have to learn how to adapt and accommodate yourself to a dominant culture just to survive in that culture. Now, those of us who are white have never had to do that, if, at least if we live here in America. But if you're a person of color, you're always having to do this. You're constantly having to adapt and accommodate yourself to the dominant white culture of America. You know what's happening here in Acts chapter 2? God is the ultimate code switcher. God so wants you to hear and to understand and to embrace the, the public truth of Christianity through Jesus Christ that, that he is willing to adapt and accommodate himself to you. Rather than force you to adapt and accommodate yourself to him, God adapts and accommodates himself to you. This is very different than, for example, modern Western culture, which um, says if you want to be a part of this culture, then you have to assimilate to a secular worldview. Western culture says, hey, if you want to be a part of the public sphere, don't bring your faith views in here. It demands that we assimilate to a secular worldview. Or it's also different from this idea that says all religions are the same. Have you ever heard that? Of course you have. To say all, listen, I understand why people say that. But with all due respect, that's simply not true. There are massive differences between the world's great religions. 
to, to flatten and obfuscate the diversity, to, um, to make all religions the same, you know, that's actually a very imperialistic thing to do. But the gospel is the opposite of the imperial impulse. In other words, God isn't only demanding that you believe certain things. He's answering the deepest longings of your heart. And it's only when we realize all of this that we begin to understand the true purpose of spiritual gifts. The, the true purpose of spiritual gifts is, is never just a raw display of supernatural power for the sake of displaying supernatural power. In fact, if we could go back to what we learned in the first point and expand on that a little bit, here's what it means. The main thing the Holy Spirit does is dwell inside of you to make the glory of Jesus more real to you and more real through you. In other words, spiritual gifts are abilities given by the Holy Spirit that empower you to adapt and accommodate yourself to others to make the glory of Jesus more real to someone else. You may do that through the gift of service or encouragement or teaching or generosity or maybe even through one of the more attention-grabbing gifts like prophecy or healing or speaking in tongues, but the focus is never on yourself. The focus is never on whether or not you're shining in the eyes of others or whether you're making a great name for yourself in the world. The focus is always on making Jesus shine in the world, making the name of Jesus great in the world. The main thing the Holy Spirit does is dwell inside of you to make the glory of Jesus more real to you and more real through you. That's the purpose of spiritual gifts, and that leads to our last point. We've seen the focus of the gifts, the glory of Jesus. We've seen the purpose of gifts, to make His glory more real to others. But lastly, how do we receive the gifts? Let me speak first to those of you who may be exploring faith, or maybe you're even skeptical about Christianity. Did you notice at the very end of this passage, it says, it talks about the crowd, and it says, and they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. These are two basic postures that we can take to the gospel. One is to mock it. And I would say um, today in our culture, many people have actually moved beyond simply mocking Christianity um, to actively seeing it as harmful and oppressive, which makes sense because the hypocrisy and injustice and abuse that is so present in the church, it's very understandable why people would see Christianity as harmful and oppressive. But notice most of the people in this passage, it says they were amazed and perplexed. That is a very unique and powerful combination. On the one hand, they're amazed because they're seeing something they've never encountered before. It fascinates them. It intrigues them. But on the other hand, they're also perplexed. That word means to be challenged by something you can't explain. Both of these things are very important because if we're only amazed, but not perplexed, then you might be fascinated by something. You might be intrigued by something. It, it, maybe it tickles your imagination, but, but you're never challenged by it and therefore it never changes your life. But if you're only perplexed by something but not amazed by it, it might challenge you. It might call you to grapple with hard things, but you'll never be motivated to do it because it doesn't capture your imagination. It doesn't move your heart. 
Friends, but when you put both of these things together, both the amazement and the perplexity, when both of those come together, it means coming face to face with something that challenges you to rethink everything you thought you knew about the world and about your life, but it also motivates you to do it because you're encountering something that captures your imagination, something that you sense is answering the deepest longings of your heart. If you're exploring faith, I want to invite you to let yourself be both amazed and perplexed. Listen, mocking is easy. It's also intellectually lazy. Will you allow yourself to be amazed and perplexed? For instance, in our culture, we tend to be amazed by um, diversity. We love the idea of diversity, right? I mean, because that answers this longing of our heart for a world of peace that honors everyone's dignity. But many of us might be perplexed to um, realize that, historically speaking, the root of our culture's love for diversity actually comes to us from the Bible. That's perplexing to many of us. I mean, think about it. Where does this love of diversity come from in our world? It doesn't come from the Roman Empire. (laughs) Rome was just like Babel, assimilate or die. No, from day one, friends, the early church was a radically multi-ethnic, multicultural community that changed the ancient world because they were amazed and perplexed by what they saw in the church. If you're exploring faith, will you let yourself be amazed and perplexed? And second, if you're a Christian, listen, there are so many things in this passage that teach us about what it means to receive spiritual gifts. We only have time to focus on one, and this is the one I want to encourage us with. Be content to be a Galilean. What does that mean? Notice in this passage, again, it's talking about the crowd, and it says they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? They say this because Galileans, back then, these were country folk. In in the eyes of these sophisticated urban elite people in Jerusalem, these Galileans were uncultured, uneducated, ignorant, backwoods hicks. They were nobodies. And yet, God pours out His Holy Spirit on these cultural nobodies and uses them to ignite a movement that changed the ancient world. Friends, we want to shine in this world, don't we? We want to make a great name for ourselves in this world. But remember, God's vision is is not just that he's not just demanding that we believe certain truths. God's vision is he, he wants to answer the deepest longings of our heart. The gospel means that it comes into your life, it becomes your captivating obsession, so that now the, the thing you want more than anything else in the world is to see the glory of Jesus shine in the world, not your glory shine in the world. You know, one of the biggest temptations that exists with spiritual gifts is that we can seek spiritual gifts as a way of shining in the eyes of others and making our names great in this world. But the gospel comes in and it subverts that impulse and it actually fulfills the deepest longings of our heart. To be content to be a Galilean means that you find your greatest joy in playing whatever role God has for you in this world. It means you cease to care what kind of spiritual gifts God has given you. You're not really concerned with that anymore. You're not worrying about that anymore. To be content to be a Galilean means that you are so filled with the love of God, so filled with awe and wonder and gratitude at the mighty works of God through Jesus that the very last thought that would ever possess your mind is to worry about whether or not you're shining in the eyes of others and making your name great in this world 
because your soul has been so possessed by the reality that you're already always and forever shining in the eyes of the only one in the universe whose opinion really matters, God. Remember, God's, he's not just demanding that we believe certain truths. He wants to answer the deepest longings of your heart. The gospel comes into your life. It becomes your captivating obsession. It gives you that shining before God. The more you see you shining in his eyes, the less you need to shine in the eyes of others. Friends, um, you know, the late, great Tim Keller, who was the wonderful pastor and uh, preacher in New York City, he just passed away last week. He, um, one of the last things he did before he died was record a short video message for his church in New York City. And uh, it was interesting to me, uh, one of the things that he encouraged them with was um, this little verse from the prophet Jeremiah that says, seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. And then he goes on to talk about Genesis 11 and the story of Babel, and he says this, many people go to the city to make a name for themselves. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. He says, Many people, he says, don't worry about your reputation. Don't worry about your credentials. Don't make getting a big name in the city your main thing. Lift up the name of Jesus. In fact, he even talks to people who are in ministry. He says, people go to the city to try to make a name for themselves. He says, don't worry about your reputation. Don't worry about your credentials. Lift up the name of Jesus because you already have a name with Jesus. You know, the, the gospel means that... Um, that God is going out of his way to adapt and accommodate himself to you. That God is going out of his way to make himself weak and vulnerable and, and to disadvantage himself in order to get to you. And the ultimate place God did that was on the cross of Jesus Christ. Because on the cross, think about it, Jesus Christ is the eternal God of the universe who is always shining for all eternity Jesus Christ is the creator of all things who has this name that's above all names. And yet on the cross, Jesus lost his name so that you could receive a name that endures forever. Jesus, the ultimate example of adapting and accommodating yourself would be the cross of Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus became weak so you could become strong. Jesus became vulnerable to the point of the most excruciating, painful, and shameful death on, on the most um, horrific instrument of public torture ever devised by human imagination, the cross, just so that you could become invincible to life. Jesus disadvantaged himself on the cross so that you could be privileged with the light and the love of God in your life forever. If you have that in your life, you no longer need to worry about whether or not you're shining in this world or whether or not your name is great in this world. You're already shining in the eyes of God, and that's everything to you. Friends, the only way we can do that, the only way we can lift up Jesus' name in this world, and the only way we can be set free from the crushing burden of constantly worrying about whether or not we're shining in this world is if you receive the ultimate spiritual gift of the life and the light and the beauty of Jesus shining on you. Friends, that's the ultimate spiritual gift. And so I would encourage you this morning, you know, we want to shine in this world. True joy is seeing Jesus shine in this world. That's real joy. If you're exploring faith, let yourself be amazed and perplexed 
by the gospel. Let yourself be content to be a Galilean. Look at Jesus shining on the cross. Look at Jesus loving you on the cross. Do you see him loving you like that? Do you see him shining like that? If not, would you like to? Lift up your eyes and let, let yourself see Jesus shining on the cross, loving you on the cross, and let the Holy Spirit make you shine for him in the world. Would you pray with me? Abba, we praise you this morning because you have gone out of your way to make your love known and real to us. You do not demand that we adapt and accommodate ourselves to you, but you went to the ultimate adaptation, the ultimate accommodation by submitting yourself to death on the cross. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for that. And we pray this morning that you would fill us more and more, open our eyes and our hearts more and more, that the great captivating obsession of our hearts and our lives would be the thing that doesn't just um, tell us what to believe, but fulfills the deepest longings of our heart, that we shine in your eyes. Thank you for loving us like that. Thank you for giving your life to us like that. And we pray this morning that you would fill our hearts more and more with your Holy Spirit, that we would be both amazed and perplexed by your gospel, and that receiving you, Lord Jesus, we would be content to be your servants in this world, content to be Galileans, humbly serving you in this world, because we don't care about whether or not our, we are shining in this world. We only care that you shine in this world. So, Lord Jesus, through us, shine in this world, for we pray it all in your name. Amen.